Welcome to the latest Experts in the Field podcast from Foot Anstead's Farms, Estates and Rural Land Team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights into rural developments and current affairs. I'm Edward Venmore, head of the team. We're pleased to bring you this episode, which is one of a number in which we'll be considering succession planning and the farming dynamics that can often cause challenges with many of our clients. Today, along with my colleague, Daniel Spaulding, we're also joined by Jessica Pitt. Jess is a partner at Fertansi and heads up our family team, as well as the private wealth sector, which brings together all of our specialists from across the firm. Jess has extensive experience acting for rural landowners, individuals, and regularly works with our clients' other professional advisors in helping clients in what can often be a very difficult period. Jess, thank you for your time and welcome. Pleasure, and, hi. Uh, and welcome again to Danielle. So first of all, question for Danielle, what makes farming families unique in this area? I think there are a number of things really. First is probably that farming families quite often work and live together and that brings its own advantages and perhaps disadvantages. There's quite often a large asset that is being that is the farm and it's common for that to be passed to son or daughter on death of parents. And from a kind of family perspective, if son or daughter marries and then later divorces, there can be problems with assets being passed to maybe an ex-spouse as part of a divorce settlement. And that sometimes can make a farm perhaps unprofitable or even not viable in a worst case scenario. So I think we quite often see that there's that intention to keep the family farm ring fenced and to ensure it passes down through the generations. And it makes it more complicated where there's that matrimonial home involved as well. And I think maybe the other thing I can think of is the overlap of personal and business. So you've not only got that relationship perspective, but you've got that business perspective in terms of family dynamics, the business and the assets. So I think those are the kind of key things from my perspective. But Jess, is there anything else you can think of from your experience of dealing with family families that makes them slightly more unique? Yeah, I mean, I think that the family relationships will often bring a slightly different perspective on on those business related conversations. So, you know, a parent child dynamic, for example, when you replicate that into a business discussion, you can often see a parent being um, as even a discussion as you might have around a board table of directors. The other complication I often see in farming businesses um, when you compare them to to other types of business is the dynamic between ownership of the land and operation of the business, which again can um, change the dynamic and and the sort of position of um, responsibility and authority to those discussions when when often someone or some people own the land but another group of people are operating the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we see a lot of um, uh, th- these questions come up a lot of family succession uh, planning and where that's not dealt with properly. Um, you can see a lot of disputes arise. Um, but I've been struck over the last few years as to how much uh, how, how much more common it is for clients to come and ask us around questions around um, prenuptial agreements. And there's one occasion uh, three or four years ago now where uh, a client who uh, was there. Uh, fairly well advanced in his years with, of meeting him with his wife and he um, he asked me the question about a prenup and I was rather puzzled but he was actually asking in relation to his son who was getting married um, in a few in a few uh, in a few months time and he wanted to bring his son into the farming partnership and so he was worried around you know the potential implications of that in the future um, 
So where do you see that? You know, where do you see these sorts of disputes? Uh, what sort of types of disputes do you come across, Jess? Well, my my day job um, is as a family lawyer. So the most obvious um, area for me are divorces. So that that could be a divorce between a, a couple that own the farming business together, but but more often it is the divorce of of a a child, an adult child of a farming family who has potentially married someone and brought them into the family partnership or or, or the farm, you know, onto the farm and uh, unraveling um, the, that person's interest in the farm asset as part of that divorce can be very difficult. And of course can be put the farm itself um, in, in quite a vulnerable position depending on, on the level of interest that that individual had. So, um, so that's, that's my day job, if you like, you know, when it, when it's a marital breakdown, the same would apply for when it, a relationship that didn't result in a marriage, but potentially a couple who have um, lived together for a long time and had children together. Um, what I don't do, uh, which would then um, come over t- to you guys and other 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 teams, is um, disputes between the family itself, whether that's parent and child or between siblings. Yeah, and that's certainly where um, so my areas sort of crossed over in, in into yours. And I've seen a few occasions, particularly one from a good few years ago now, where um, there was a, 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 a lovely couple who had tried to plan for passing on the assets properly to their children. Um, but they've done it in a very piecemeal way and um, taken advice from lots of different advisors, which is probably one lesson um, of things not to do. But then um, they also, their affairs were complicated by the fact that one of their children was going through a very messy divorce and he was a partner in, um, in the family farming partnership. And that divorce was a real driver then of a breakdown in relationship with him and his uh, siblings and uh, led to a very unhappy, um, unhappy dispute in the family, which took some considerable time to um, to, to resolve. Um, I think for me, really, the, the, what strikes me in the cases I've dealt with is the huge amount of, it's not just about money, it's the huge amount of emotional upset that these things cause, which you could, you know, no amount of money can really properly compensate for. Um, and a lot of these things are avoidable, or at least can be mitigated by some uh, proper planning. And um, Jess, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, um, prenups and postnuptial agreements, uh, something I mentioned earlier, one of the examples I gave. Um, but that's obviously uh, a, a term which is much more common these days than it was even 10 years ago in this country. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I often talk to people about um, these sorts of agreements as being like an insurance product. You know, you, you take it out to help protect and defend an asset. Um, you hope you're never going to need it. You hope you can put it in a bottom drawer and never look at it again. But it's a really prudent way to um do something to try and and mitigate against sort of a worst case scenario. So a, a prenuptial agreement is an agreement entered into before a couple marry. A postnuptial agreement is an agreement entered into after a couple marry. But they do the same thing, which is to say, if this marriage is to break down, we want to divide our assets in the following way. And the benefit of those documents is that then if that marriage does break down, there is certainty and clarity around what will happen to to the couple's assets and interests. Clearly, those sorts of agreements aren't for everybody. But where there is a farm business, a family farm involved, I would recommend most people really seriously consider entering into these agreements because 
they make sure that the, the business, the family business, that intergenerational asset is going to be protected and preserved for future generations, which is what everybody wants. It also makes sure that there is going to be no potential difficulty between a group of siblings. They all know that their um, interests in that family business are going to be protected. It can also help unlock wider succession discussions, because I think understandably, a lot of people are really concerned about passing down the farm to the next generation because of the risk of a relationship breakdown. Well, with these agreements in place, that succession can take place within a, a much more secure and protective environment. In my experience, most people marrying into family farms completely understand and respect the desire and need to have something in place to help protect that business moving forward. And I've never had a situation where anyone uh, involved in prenup or postnup discussions refuses to sign um, because, as I say, I think they recognize that there's a much bigger dynamic involved. It's not just the person they're marrying. It's that person's parents. It's that person's siblings. Sometimes it's that person's other adult children. The other really important thing just to say, Edward, is that prenups and postnups don't say if we divorce, I have everything and you have nothing. And in fact, if that's what they said, they wouldn't be upheld by the court. They have to be fair. They have to meet people's needs. So when we're um, negotiating and agreeing the terms of prenups, what we're actually doing is saying the farm is going to be protected as a business entity. We know that you, spouse, would be entitled to something in the event of a divorce. But what you're signing up to in this agreement is that you will have enough money provided to you to meet your needs, but that will happen off the farm. You know, so you're not going to get a share of the farmland. Uh, you're not going to necessarily get a share of, of the farm income, but what you will get is provision to meet your needs from external sources. Uh, I think once people understand that this isn't an all or nothing scenario. It's just about ring fencing certain assets, but making fair provision from the other assets. Uh, that's where we, we often, um, you know, a couple can enter these agreements, both walk away really happy, um, knowing that uh, between them and, and within that wider family, everyone understands that this is a relationship for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. But if things were to go wrong, that, that everyone is protected. I think I'm right in saying as well that uh, for obvious reasons, you can't just present a uh, draft prenuptial agreement to your future husband or wife uh, the night before the wedding, can you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, only only in Hollywood would that happen. No, so you're right that um, the, the agreement has to be signed at least 28 days before a wedding and and the couple both have to have independent legal advice on the agreement before they can sign. And if any of those requirements are not complied with, then the agreement wouldn't be upheld. So it's, it's an absolute red line for us. Um, and it's critical that, that people are entering into an agreement that they understand um, that has had sort of a, a, a full and fair discussion between the couple about what there is, potentially what they're giving up, potentially what they're gaining. And it's, and it's in that framework that, that we have every confidence that they would be upheld by a judge. But, you know, that, that also sort of speaks to what I mentioned before, that these I know it sounds a bit challenging when you talk about prenups, you know, how do you raise them with someone who you've just proposed to? 
but actually if you can see them in the context of a, of a less about the relationship between the couple and more about the dynamic of this family business. It helps sort of remove it from being about, you know, this person that might be marrying into the family and more about this is how we as a family in general have decided to to protect and defend our business against risk in the future, which then brings us back into the insurance analogy that I talked about before. You know, so one way Absolutely. that we have have um, explored that before um, is sort of you know a family constitution, or, or or actually put it in in the partnership agreement itself, and often this can be done even before any of the uh, children are even close to to you know getting engaged or planning to marry. So as I said, it becomes less about an individual who's marrying in and more about a really generic requirement that before anybody became a partner in the business, um, they would need to have a, a nuptial agreement in place. No, I think that's a really good point because it completely um, depersonalizes it. If it's been in the partnership agreement for many years, then it's uh, it should not be an issue and yeah. Yeah, at all. But that neatly sort of brings us on to other documents. You've already sort of mentioned a, a couple Jess that really when we're looking at these things we obviously view it really as a sort of suite of documents that uh, that a client should at least consider to try to put in place proper succession plans and guard against these uh, risks and Danielle Jess just mentioned the um, question of partnership agreements that's obviously something we encourage clients yeah. um, to, um, to do. Do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah definitely I think um we see um, a lot of families who are family in partnership and sometimes they've got a written partnership agreement and sometimes perhaps they don't have one. And I think um, what we can't stress enough is that it's, it's really important to have that written agreement. It just makes things clearer in terms of what was to happen if a partner of the business was to die, for example. And um, that distinction between what, what assets are part of the partnership and what are not. Um, from the disputes that that we see and deal with a good written partnership agreement really does help get to the bottom of um the issues and dispute when when farming families come to us and i think from a, a practical perspective as well um we've noticed that banks are asking for partnership agreements before they'll lend um and i think that's sensible um and like you said jess about you know you see these documents as a bit of an insurance policy I think we think of it as the same. They are, you know, an insurance policy in case of a partnership dispute or breakdown, because if you haven't got one, then the costs of, you know, dealing with a dispute far outweigh the costs of taking advice at the outset and perhaps getting in, getting that partnership agreement drafted and in place. Um, and if you don't have one, you're effectively having to hope that, you know, you can reach a sensible agreement between the family at a time perhaps when tensions are high and it, it might not be possible so I think it's just really important and um, apart from partnership agreements the other thing that I was just going to mention as being a, a bit of a must-have um, and, and what we recommend is wills um, it might, might sound kind of really basic but you know having a will but not just having one but updating it regularly and especially on what we would call trigger events so things such as marriage having children or a divorce um, and as part of that kind of really encouraging um, families to have open discussions about planning for the future 
and really involving all those right professionals such as you know the family accountants and financial advisors just to make sure that you know and solicitors obviously but to make sure that you're thinking about the legal and the tax perspectives um, and one point that I was just talking to a private um, private client colleague about earlier which I think um, is something that you know is really useful to flag is that um, a remarriage revokes any earlier will so that can be something that can be quite easily forgotten but basically if you remarry and you'd originally left your farm to your children that remarriage is going to revoke that will and the farm would pass to your new spouse under intestacy rules and I think that's perhaps something that farming families um, you know it's, it's not clear um, and it's something that a legal advisor would flag to you but that, that's why those trigger events and thinking about your documents and whether they need updating are, are really important. I think, yeah I think that's a really important point and it applies to all the all the documents we're talking about here uh, today because these things often are done and put in the drawer and forgotten about and um, partnership agreements for example there's something that really sensibly should be looked at perhaps once a year or at least once every two or three years just to check that they all make sense and that applies to many of the documents I think we're talking about. Jess can I ask you um, about um, family constitutions so you know, a few years ago that was a phrase that um, that we heard a lot about and we saw, certainly saw some clients look to draft and agree those um, maybe wrongly I think it's perhaps an idea that's sort of fallen away a little bit over the last um, few years with people focusing on more traditional things like partnership agreements and, and prenups um, but do you want to say a few words about well what is a family constitution to start with? Yeah I mean I think really it's nothing more sophisticated than a, a written um, record of what a farming family um, aspires to or how they aspire to run their business um, it, it's not a document that has sort of independent legal recognition you know it's not enforceable like a contract would be but I think you know when a family um, take the opportunity to sit down think about what they want to achieve and how they want to achieve it um, what can spin off from that are other legal documents like wills, like prenups, like like partnership agreements. But but a family constitution can be sort of an, an overarching document that sits above all of that, that can sometimes, you know, fill in some of the gaps. So, you know, a will, for example, it, it is a personal document, whereas a family constitution could record, you know, parents are going to have wills that are going to, 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 to divide the, the farm in this way or person x is going to be responsible for running this part of the farm and and the longer term plan with um you know appropriate tax planning will be to transfer certain parts of the farm to them during during a lifetime as an example so so they can sort of set out future plans they can also set out you know current arrangements you know i think i think we as lawyers um are fixated with having everything recorded in writing but that fixation comes from a really sensible place which is where there is no proper record or minute of what was discussed then years down the line people's memory and recollection of that can change significantly and I'm sure we've all been involved in court proceedings where you have two people who have recalled something completely different Differently. A family constitution would be a way of making sure that there was a contemporaneous record of those discussions, of those agreements, of those shared hopes and aspirations and plans. And, and people can then use that document to, to revisit it. Um, 
you know, every year, every three years, every five years, as they think about their future, their plans, their sort of strategy to, to keep the business as successful as it has been. So no, I agree yeah, completely. Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, I think it's just a good way to keep everyone pointing in the same direction and, and to encourage a review and open and frank conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the other thing to say, Edward, is, um, you know, professionals can help with that process so you know we as lawyers um you know are often involved in families having that planning discussion accountants will be really regularly involved in it as well i think for families who find um those direct discussions difficult you know there are um sort of consultants working in this space who can sort of sit down with a family and help um move away from what starts as a blank sheet of paper into something that everyone can can work from together. Um, so if it feels like an intimidating or overwhelming thing to start, uh, you know, that there will be lots of professionals who have lots of experience in this field who can who can help guide through it. Jess, just sort of turning to a um, uh, question of agreements between couples, uh, we've obviously talked about prenups or post-nups but what about um cohabitation agreements um you obviously yeah, see quite absolutely. a few of those i'm sure yeah we, we absolutely do you know so again that they are um, a defensive document if you like it, it's it's to protect ownership of an asset so you know when uh, a couple live together but they don't marry you know that there aren't the same um wide-ranging uh, legal support. You know, there's no concept of a common law spouse. You know, so there's um, there is it, there is there is less risk, but there is still some risk. So we would recommend anyone who is living with a partner, particularly where that partner is moving into a house that they themselves own. Uh, it's worthwhile having a cohabitation agreement in place just to make it perfectly clear that the person moving in has no legal interest in in the property that they're living in. Sometimes the cab agreements can go much further than that. So they can talk about, uh, you know, the, the rights of occupation that that person might have, for example. So they know um, that they're not going to be thrown out without without proper notice. <laughs> so, you know, as with any of these documents, you know, they, they can protect both parties. But, yeah, I think if you if you are living in a house that you own and you invite uh, your partner to live with you in that house, it's worthwhile having an agreement in place uh, just so that everybody is perfectly clear that um, the limited legal claims that they could bring are also uh, defended against. Yeah, Um, we've talked a lot about lack of documentation and the problems that it causes, and we obviously come across kind of disputes fairly regularly. But Jess, have you got an, an example of a matter where things have been dealt with kind of really well and the family have had good good documentation in place and and that's resulted in a kind of positive outcome is there any anything that you can kind of think of as a standout example yeah absolutely I mean I think that the I think that the families that I've worked with uh, where it has worked um really well are where this process is completely depersonalized so the the uh, the requirement for nuptial agreements has been written in to uh, the case I'm thinking about. It was a partnership agreement. Mm. And it said that before anyone could join the partnership, they had to have a nuptial agreement in place. And there were there were three sons um, and some of the sons were already married. One wasn't. And uh, the um, the parents were looking to bring the three sons into the partnership. Um, but 
they the sons all knew and particularly the sons wives all knew that before um that partnership succession would take place that the prenups and postnups would would be would be implemented and uh, you know in in that scenario uh it, there was also an understanding about, you know, as part of that family discussion about how the farm would be split up. Uh, this was a family where it's quite lucky that there were sort of three obvious businesses within mm -hmm. the farm. So again, parents were really open with their children and their children's spouses around what that future um, succession planning would look like. And that then also enabled each couple within their own nuptial agreement to decide between them how they might want to plan their future, you know, where might that provision for the spouse and their children come from? Um, you know, I think that I know anything involving lawyers and legal documents feels like an intimidating process. And, and I'm sure, you know, when anyone thinks about nuptial agreement, sort of the, the worst case scenario come to their head. But you know, that was a really positive outcome in terms of mum and dad having confidence um, to then transfer their interests in the business to their sons the sons were delighted that they were now in the partnership with mm. with a business that they could take forward and the spouses of those sons also had security and certainty about their own um, future because those prenups can talk about you know that you know potentially a difference between a spouse who marries in and does nothing or a spouse who marries in and actually is going to invest uh, you know hundred thousand pounds of their own money developing a barn on the farm you know mm. so so again they know that they're making that investment with the knowledge and security that they will be um retaining that you know as well so it's i think it's that you know this family was was a really good example of um everyone being open and knowing that those conversations at times can be a bit difficult but yeah. if you bite the bullet and sit down and start the conversation at the end of it, everyone walks away so much happier. Yeah, yeah. I think the key theme seems to be kind of early open discussion and also kind of transparency discussion. Um, I, I was just going to ask just to kind of wrap up um, both you and Edward, um, kind of three top tips for farming families and planning for the future. Edward, I don't know whether you want to go first with those. I think Jess and I probably say many sort of similar similar things on this, but I think the first of all, start discussions early. That's got to be uh, uh, number one. These things can often take a long time to put in place plans to pass down uh, the farming assets to the next generation in a sensible way. That can take a lot of thought and planning across you know a range of different advisors, be that accounting and 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 legal. Um, secondly, I think having uh, doing the documents that we've talked about, or at least considering doing some of those documents. Uh, we all see between the three of us a huge number of these uh, cases where th that isn't done and that gives rise to a lot of unhappiness, I said, um, as I said earlier on, which you know, everyone would want to prevent and a little bit of planning can help prevent that. And then finally, keeping those documents under review because things can change um, uh, and they should be kept under review, you know, at least annually and certainly when there are any significant sort of life-changing uh, events, be that marriage, etc. But Jess, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing I'd add to that, I and mean, I agree with everything that you say, um, Edward, but I think that starting this conversation is hard. And uh, if you just sort of drop it in over the breakfast table, you're probably not going to get the same considered response <laughs> as you might want. 
So to try to, um, where you can, remove it from sort of the domestic life and move it into a, a sort of a more serious conversation. Um, now, often in my experience, that works really well where you take it into a professional advisor's office. So, you know, you as a family book in to meet with your accountant or your lawyer and say, you know, we all want to have this open discussion around our plans. And I think if everyone knows it's happening, they can prepare for it mentally. It, often if there's someone not from the family there, that can help shift any of those um, into family dynamics that I talked about at the beginning. I, I think that can really, really help. So. You know, as I say, rather than it becoming sort of an afterthought, prioritise it, plan for it. And I think if everyone can prepare for those discussions, um, then then that can help. So I suppose that's my three. Great. Uh, thank you, Jess. I really appreciate your time joining us today. Uh, May the themes we've talked about, we're obviously going to come up in other episodes where we talk uh, again around some of the steps that can be taken for around succession planning. Um, I hope everyone listening found that really useful. Uh, please do take a look at our website and subscribe for future editions of this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next Foot Anstey Experts in the Field podcast. Join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues. Find out more about our podcast series at footanstey.com.